Welcome and thank you for joining NALFA's Affordable Housing Podcast. My name is Caitlin Harris. I am NALFA's Policy Director. And today I'm joined by David Dworkin, the President and CEO of the National Housing Conference. Thank you for joining us today, David. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. To get us started, will you tell us a little bit about your background in housing and how you came to be the President and CEO of the National Housing Conference? Sure. So um, my first experience in housing was at Fannie Mae. I had um, worked there for about 12 years. I did a little bit of everything. I ran our Detroit office uh, and focused on affordable housing there. I did product development and uh, ran our partnership offices around the country. And when um, I, uh, after the financial crisis, I ended up um, at the Treasury Department working on housing finance reform and the recovery from the crisis including foreclosure prevention and um, vacant and abandoned housing mitigation. And so um, I was there for six years, five years under President Obama and one year under President Trump, and was approached by the board and asked to come to the National Housing Conference and uh, lead the organization. I'm their 17th CEO. Um, We were founded in 1931, and uh, I like to say Eleanor Roosevelt held our first fundraiser. So uh, we've been around the block on the housing issues. We actually, in 1933, when FDR became president, we advocated for housing being included in the infrastructure bill. Um, And I think it's fair to say that that is still an issue today. And we're very hopeful that housing will be included in the next infrastructure bill. The uh, focus at the time was on a massive foreclosure crisis that was going on throughout the country uh, during the Great Depression. And the um, proliferation of slums, extremely substandard properties in cities all across the country, and slum-like conditions in rural areas around the country where people were living without running water, without electricity, Mm -hmm. in overcrowded buildings, eight-floor walk-ups, and the need for to build new housing was really pronounced, and that was our main focus. We also worked on the 1937 Housing at National Housing Act, which was the foundational uh, housing act of the 20th, 20th century. And uh, after the war, we worked on the 1949 National Housing Act. We have four signing pens at the office from the creation of HUD in 1965 and the Housing and Community Development Act of 1968. And it's actually been 50 years since we've a little over 50 years since we've had a comprehensive national housing act for the mm-hmm. United States and we're way overdue. Uh, so we are working with our members today to actually draft a national housing act for the 21st century. There's been a lot of focus on different elements of housing and community development and affordable housing and housing affordability. The, um, a lot of, organizations are focused on their mission in their lane but to do this right we really need to bring all of that talent together and all that experience and come up with a national housing act that really addresses the problem and we want to be able to go to members of congress once we've drafted it and say if you want to solve this problem this is how you do it Uh, If you want to solve half the problem, you can do half of this. Mm -hmm. But this is the experience of a broad range of housing experts from around the country, very ideologically diverse, that says this is what we need to do. So that's one of our main initiatives. The other initiative, which we're going to talk about, is the um, CRA, 
uh, the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977, and a major initiative that's going on right now among regulators to modernize that, um, that Community Reinvestment Act. Excellent. Can you expand a little more on CRA and possibly provide a, a brief background um, of when it was created and why it was created? Sure. So the Community Reinvestment Act um, really is an outgrowth of the 1968 Fair Housing Law. And the Fair Housing Act of 1968 made discrimination in housing illegal. Prior to that, not only was discrimination in housing not illegal, it was actually promoted by the U.S. government. Uh, in the 1930s, when the Homeowner Loan Corporation was um, created to help stem foreclosures during the Great Depression, areas were drawn out on a map based on whether or not they had people of color living there. And if you were a person of color in a neighborhood, even as just as many as two in a census tract, they would draw a red line around that geography and lenders uh, would not lend there. The federal programs would not be available there. They were considered too risky. And it was solely based on race, which is really incredible when you think of it today. But we, um, we still suffer under that legacy of that redlining. Those neighborhoods that were excluded continue to struggle today. And certainly the wealth that was created as a result of those programs has not been able to be grown and passed on among generations in the communities that were excluded. So once that became illegal, the following um, real major legislation as an outgrowth of that was the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act in 1974, and we often refer to that as HUMDA. HUMDA data was meant to ascertain whether or not lending was being done in communities that were underserved. Essentially, it's a way to know if the Fair Housing Act is working. And the data came back, and it was very clear that it was not, that it was important to outlaw discrimination, but it did not end discrimination. And with the Humda data able to track the performance year to year, um, it was clear that more needed to be done. And so Congress in 1977, Senator William Proxmire and um, others, realized that we need to do more than tell banks that they can't discriminate. We need to incent them to do the right thing. So the concept behind the Community Reinvestment Act, CRA, was that we would create incentives for banks to lend in underserved communities. And that has grown and evolved over the years, but it's essentially the same idea, which is that you get ratings based on the extent to which you're active in communities that are underserved. There were two reasons why this was particularly important at that time. One of them is that there was the lasting effects of redlining, the purposeful exclusion of people of color, particularly African Americans, but also Hispanics and immigrants, that um, had occurred over a multi-generational period of time. But the other was that during the 70s, you were seeing an increase in urban disinvestment that as a result of white flight um, that in some ways um, came out of fear of the uh, 1968 Fair Housing Act. Investment was moving into the suburbs. Um, 
money was being taken out of cities, out of increasingly diverse neighborhoods, and invested in increasingly white green fields outside of those cities. And that movement of capital out of the cities was something they were trying to stem as well because it was fundamentally unfair that you would be invested by taking deposits in in one area and then using it to invest in another. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to address that as well. Now, we have a little different scenario today, which is that cities have been coming back and a lot of investment has been going into cities. The concern now is that when that investment comes back, it not displace the residents that have been there over the last 50 years. And I think it's very important. So when we think about CRA and its geographic uh, emphasis, it goes both ways. We want the investment and the deposits to be intertwined, and but we also want to make sure that we're not displacing people from the communities that we're trying to help. So then they end up just moving to another poor community, and then we have to help that community. We really want to help people where they're at. Thank you for that. Um, has there been any um, changes in modernizations since 1977 to the CRA rule? There have, and the most recent was in 1995 when the regulations were rewritten. Since then, the regulations have really been addressed through Q&As that the regulators have issued based on uh, questions that they get from regulated entities. It's not enough. And one of the reasons why we really need to rewrite the regulation is because the banking industry has changed so much. What we've seen since the early 90s is the proliferation of uh, non-bank lending, which has grown dramatically, especially since the housing crisis 10 years ago, but also the rise of interstate banking, more and more banks, especially large banks, are regional banks, multi-regional banks, national banks. And this really is very different than uh, was envisioned when CRA was created and certainly when the 95 regs were written. The other fact is that we have Internet banks, banks that don't have any branches at all. They take deposits from all over the country. Those didn't really exist either. There was no mobile banking. Then people weren't actually... We're just beginning to do the very early um, stages of online banking in the mid-90s. Now we have online banking is very commonplace, and you know, I like to say my 89-year-old mother deposits her checks on her phone. So if she's doing it, it's pretty well saturated in, in the world today, and we need to make sure that the way CRA is um, put in practice uh, embraces that change. The other reason we need to look at CRA is that um, regulators have struggled to um, provide clear guidance to banks. And the way banks are set up to make financial decisions, this is a really important component of why some of this change is necessary, particularly on the issue of clarity and consistency, is that when bank is looking at doing a Community Reinvestment Act investment, it's generally a community development officer at the bank that is making the pitch. But they're competing against other parts of the bank that are doing more traditional higher-end market rate deals. And they're 
competing before a committee usually of bank officers who are allocating capital. And that capital um, is allocated based on the return that you're getting. We, we actually want banks to be making business decisions on a risk-weighted return because we want banks to be healthy and not fail during a crisis. We also want them to be making responsible, safe and sound lending that doesn't earn quite as much money but does impact and help communities. When two officers are competing for funds from two different parts of the bank, I may be coming into that meeting with a rate of return of 11 points, which is very respectable. But if somebody's doing a high-rise, high-dollar-volume condo development uh, or a commercial uh, real estate deal, they could be looking at a 20% rate of return. And for the person who's allocating that capital and is being paid on a risk-weighted return in terms of his bonus or her bonus, I'm a minus nine. And um, basically what they see is that they're underwriting my job performance with their bonus. So that's a flaw in the compensation system that's inherent in the way a financial institution is run. And the way to address that is to give quantifiable impact to the bank on CRA credit. I need to be able to go into that meeting and say, I am getting CRA credit for this deal. And now my 11 becomes an 18, and we're having a real conversation about what to invest where. If I have to say, well, I'm not really sure, the regulator can't tell me, but you know, it's it's opaque, but I'm pretty sure we're going to get credit. We got credit for a similar deal last year or longer, that's not going to fly, and I'm going to still be a minus nine in that conversation. So providing clarity and having consistency around guidance from the regulator is really important, and the current regs don't allow for that. We need to do a much better job, and that's one of the issues that we're looking at in this current regulatory um, effort. Can you expand on what the current regulatory efforts are? So... What we're looking at is a variety of tests. We're looking at a retail test. How are they doing on their retail lending? A service test. Are they providing services to the community? And a community development investment test. Um, Are they investing in the community? And each one of those carries a certain amount of weight. They come together into an overall rating. And the examiner has a lot of discretion in terms of what they allow and what they don't, what gets credit and how much. And the bank doesn't always know what that's going to be. The other factor that's weighed into all this, which has also been pretty opaque, is something called performance context. And that means, as a bank, these clearly these performance levels are not static. How are my competitors doing? Is there really business in the market where I have an assessment area, the geographic area that's being assessed? Or is is there a lot of business and the fact that I'm doing more than I did last year really doesn't matter because, or isn't isn't as impactful because everybody else is doing much more? How am I doing against my peers? Those kinds of performance context points are also very hard to understand from Uh, the bank's perspective, and we need to make them much clearer. 
And so part of what's being discussed right now is how do you improve the clarity and consistency of the performance context. So again, as a banker, I have a much better idea of what is uh, going to count and what isn't. And in the community, I also have a clear sense of, uh, particularly if I'm a community development financial institution or a um, nonprofit housing developer and I'm doing a deal, I want to know my deal is going to actually get CRA credit and I want the bank that I'm working with to know they're getting credit it's going to mean they're more likely uh, going to invest in my property and maybe give me a better rate. So a lot of the affordable housing industry is really interested on the effect CRA modernization will have on the low-income housing tax credit. Um, I believe it's come out about 75% of the low-income housing tax credit is done through CRA. Um, and so there's a lot of concern that the new CRA modernization might affect that. And there's also several other concerns that have come out um, regarding the modernization proposal. And uh, could you address what some of sure. those are? So this really gets down to what the current proposal by the Office of Controller, the Currency, and the FDIC, these are two of the three regulators, that are responsible for banking regulation and CRA. The third is the Federal Reserve Board. Most of the large banks are covered by the OCC. They're chartered under the OCC. So they're incredibly important in this. And when we talk about what counts and what doesn't, in the past, the low-income housing tax credit was a very impactful way to move your CRA rating. One, because rents are fixed in the future for the next 15 years and often 30, they, those investments get automatic credit for CRA as long as they're in the assessment area that you are, um, that's relevant to your institution. An important component of your CRA rating is where you do your lending and your investing. And is it in the areas that uh, you're supposed to, your assessment areas? If you're a traditional bank, you have branches, and those assessment areas are um, around those branches. But since the 90s, we've seen more and more banks who get deposits from all over the country. They might be in Internet banks and only have one office. They don't even have a single branch. And that office is going to be located in an area that has the best tax treatment for them. And so a lot of those internet banks and non-traditional banks uh, are branchless banks, for instance, are located in Delaware or in Utah where they don't have to pay state income tax. And those banks end up having assessment areas around their location, um, but in fact they're taking deposits and making investments all over the country the location really isn't relevant to that. This distorts the market and creates what we call CRA hotspots, where a lot of banks are investing in a small geography. How does this affect LIHTC? Well, the value of LIHTC is the tax credit is traded and sold based on its value to the investors. And LIHTC credits in a typical area might get 95 cents on the dollar. 
maybe they get 90 cents on the dollar, and that creates equity that the um, uh, LIHTC investment is able to use in their um, capital stack. The alternative is if you're in an area where there's no CRA interest, like in a rural area that isn't covered by a major bank or even a regional bank, those areas are called CRA deserts. And it's very hard to get a LIHTC deal done there, even though they may be quite needed, because the pricing for the low-income housing tax credits is much lower. Maybe it's 80%. Maybe it's none. Maybe nobody's actually interested in doing LIHTC there whatsoever. That's a big set of disparities. In the meantime, if you're doing a LIHTC deal in Salt Lake City, you could be getting $1.20 per credit. And that means that you end up doing a lot of LIHTC gets concentrated in cities like Salt Lake and Wilmington, Delaware, and in New York City, although it's a little different scenario in New York. And so in the, under the current application of the rule, um, you have these CRA hotspots, and you have a LIHTC industry that's really kind of followed the CRA around the country. Under the new proposal by the OCC, they changed the way we look at investments, and we really look at a ratio-driven approach, a metric that looks at the total number of deposits that you have. You divide the um, number of uh, investments in the dollar volume of your community development, and you come up with a ratio number that determines whether or not you're going to get CRA uh, outstanding rating or a CRA satisfactory rating, or maybe you're you know going to be found below satisfactory. That impacts whether or not your bank can expand and merge and, and do other things. The result is that there's a huge incentive under this new proposed plan to do bigger deals. And while it seeks to um, reduce the CRA hotspots, uh, it actually moves them around a bit, but you still end up having um, both a concentration in certain geographies as well as a concentration of capital in larger investments, which means that smaller investments, more complicated investments, are less likely to be done. In the case of LIHTC, it's m also about timing. If I have a clear understanding that I'm going to make my CRA goals in June of any given year, and I did some really large investments, some of which may have been LIHTC early in the year, and we were looking more at quality rather than quantity, mm -hmm. then uh, LIHTC deals that are closing during the second half of the year are going to be priced differently than those closing in the first half of the year, and that's going to be very disruptive. And there's going to be a lot of pressure to close deals during certain parts of the year and in certain geographies. And it's not, it's, you know, what uh, Governor, federal governor, uh, Lael Brainerd calls an unintended consequence of a ratio-driven approach. And I think what I like to say about unintended consequences is that the law of unintended consequences is never repealed. And so on something as complicated as this, it's easy to have unintended consequences. It's incumbent on us to mitigate for them. And we're hoping this comment period that we're in right now will allow us to give the OCC and the FDIC the kind of guidance they need 
to meet the need for better metrics. We want more clarity and we want better metrics, but we also want to make sure that we're doing the right thing and having the kind of impact that the OCC says they want to have. But in fact, we believe that the current plan won't provide. So you mentioned that the current CRA modernization proposal was just the OCC and the FDIC and the Federal Reserve did not sign on with them. Can you explain why they wouldn't join their plan? And does the Fed believe that they'll come out with their own plan? Like many of the stakeholders who commented on the advance notice of proposed rulemaking that the OCC put out, The Fed is concerned that a metric-driven approach that is dependent on a ratio of uh, investments and deposits would have this vast array of unintended consequences that would actually depreciate the value of CRA and reduce the amount of CRA lending over time. They're also concerned about the lack of data that exists to properly make these assessments. And they're concerned about the failure of the OCC plan to adequately address the performance context, which helps ensure that banks make safe and sound investments in times when the economy is struggling, as well as making um, safe and sound and impactful investments when the economy is doing well. And those are going to be different at different times in the economic cycle. One of the concerns from the very beginning in CRA that was addressed in the hearings when the Congress was considering the bill in the 1970s was that government bureaucrats not be engaged in credit allocation because it's just really hard for government employees to manage an economy like that and to be uh, uh, both accurate and timely in decisions that they make. And so avoiding federal credit allocation was very high on the list of things uh, that they were concerned about. It still is. And the danger of a ratio-driven approach is that it could lead to credit allocation by the federal government. Future administration, right now the levels are set so low that the vast majority of banks will easily qualify for credit the way this is structured. But a future administration could decide to change those numbers and actually make it nearly impossible for 80% of the banks to get a satisfactory rating, and that would be really bad. And so that's a pendulum swing that we want to avoid in the banking industry because it's unstable and because it um, is not responsive to current economic times. The Federal Reserve Board is very concerned about that. They tried to negotiate with the OCC, For whatever reason, the two weren't able to reach an agreement. The OCC decided to go alone. The FDIC chose to go with them. And the Federal Reserve Board, led by Chairman Jay Powell and Federal Reserve Board Governor Lael Brainerd, has attempted to develop their own plan. Mm -hmm. We're hoping that they will issue their own notice of proposed rulemaking or advanced notice of proposed rulemaking to different bureaucratic mechanisms for moving a rule through the process, and that we'll be able to see two different plans and compare and contrast them, and hopefully everybody will ultimately agree on a responsible way forward. The Fed has 
um, been very active in this space. They've developed a, some really incredible analytics to help clarify things like performance context. We're looking forward to seeing what they propose in a regulation. And ultimately, we're hopeful that um, an approach similar to the one that they've adopted uh, or have been, been talking about is ultimately adopted for the whole country. We think that would be very productive. So we're watching their efforts very closely. Normally, all three regulators would go together. Uh, that hasn't been the case this time, but it's not out of the question that they could come together in the future. Or if not, then the Federal Reserve could issue a regulation that can get its own um, uh, sub level of support, ultimately have its own track record, and in the future, if it's better, maybe the OCC would join at some point later on. I think that's a possibility, but the disruption of having two different plans um, would, would certainly be quite significant, and we're hopeful that it doesn't come to that, although increasingly it looks like it will. What would the outcome be if there is two separate plans that work all the way through the proposed rulemaking process? Um, at the end, to have a final rule, what would that process look like to combine or condense if they don't see eye to eye? Well, a couple things. One is that banks are chartered in one organization or another, and mm -hmm. they tend to uh, make those decisions based on their prudential regulation, and most of the banks are actually regulated by the OCC today, most mm -hmm. of the bigger banks. Most of the smaller banks are um, regulated by the FDIC and the Fed. There are exceptions to that. But you end up with, in, in a single community, having a variety of banks that are actually meeting different standards. And that's very confusing for the communities and for the community development entities that are engaged there. We think that would be very counterproductive. It's also complicated for the banks when competitors in uh, any particular geography are operating on a different set of regulations. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you could end up with something called regulatory arbitrage, where banks move from one, one regulator to another because they like the regs in one area or not. Um, and it's just disruptive and um, not a good way of doing business from a federal regulatory perspective or from a business perspective. We're hopeful that's not the case. One of the things that we've really tried to achieve in this regulatory reform has been to improve clarity and consistency. It's something that when I was at the Treasury Department and we were studying this, we heard a lot from both banks and other stakeholders, including community advocates, was that the lack of clarity and the lack of consistency inhibited the ability of CRA to really meet its full potential. We think that if we end up with multiple regulations, that would only exacerbate that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, David, for sharing uh, so much insight on CRA. Um, before we close today, um, what's next for NHC? What will you be doing after you respond to CRA? What's in the horizon for your policy priorities? So I think the next big thing is for us to continue our work on the National Housing Act. We really need to have a comprehensive, holistic approach to affordable housing. We have a growing housing affordability crisis in this country. 
One in five millennials are still living at home with their parents. Um, household formation has been delayed in part because it's so expensive to move out of the house. There are a lot of people in their early to mid-20s who have good jobs and are living at home mm -hmm. because they can't afford an apartment in the area where, or to buy a home, in the areas where the jobs are. We also have a crisis in black home ownership. We're following the crisis. The gap between black and white home ownership and white and Hispanic home ownership has gotten wider and wider, and millions of families lost their homes. Many of them were African Americans, first-time home buyers. They were uh, the subject of uh, equity stripping and other predatory forms of lending. This makes the wealth gap even worse. None of that is good for our country, and we need to address that. Uh, we also have the fact that um, we have a growing population of homeless in this country. It's obvious everywhere you go. It's also particularly acute on the coasts. You know, in Los Angeles, California, every day there are 5,000 or more people who climb out of a car or a tent they go to a public restroom to wash up and go to work every day. I mean, that's really shocking that this is occurring in America. There are tens of thousands of homeless people in individual cities. They're living in um, tent villages within cities. Much of that is because housing has become increasingly unaffordable, and that's just unacceptable. It's really a national shame. And then housing in general is too expensive for everybody along the income spectrum and it shouldn't be it doesn't need to be the reason it is is because we're simply not building enough housing at all income levels Absolutely. but particularly at at levels that are affordable to typical working person who has a decent job but can't afford um, a, a apartment that they might have been able to afford 10 years ago and we really need to address that. In some communities, the average price of a home has gone from $200,000 to $800,000 for the same house. And that's just not sustainable. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of that. We look forward to hearing more uh, from NHC, especially on the National Housing Act and um, all the progress you'll be making in these other areas. Again, this is Caitlin Harris, and I'm joined by David Dorkin, the president and CEO of the National Housing Conference. And thank you for tuning in to NALFA's Affordable Housing Podcast.